functioning, which in a way express, manifest our potential. But then life happens, unfolds, and we have the influence and the condition from our society, our family, our basic makeup, our tendencies. And so from that, there is this complex conditioning. And from that, I think in meditation, very clearly, we can start to see, it's like there is these habits, this groove, it seems to be in our being, that we straight away, we go down those grooves. And in a way, to see that those grooves are of a different nature. You have what I would call the mental habits, you have the emotional habits, you have the physical habits. And of course, as an experience, they all come together. But sometimes one is more prominent, one is act more as a trigger. And that's why I think it's important to see the, the different types and how they come together and how they can fix us and limit us. And I would say, over time, when we meditate, I found that actually we could see the patterning at three different levels. And I think it's important to see that, these three different levels of patterning, because with the three different levels, we need to do different things. So I think it's very important to see our habits are not always exactly the same, are not the same degree of intensity. And so I would say there are three types of patterns. There are what I would call the intense type, the habitual type, and the light manifestation. And what is important with the intense type is to see it arise out of conditions. And, and because often when we caught in the intensity of a pattern, in the middle of it we have the feeling that it is always like this. I am always like that. Because it's so intense, we cannot see anything else. But I think what is important is that we don't, we see we don't feel intensely all the time. Generally we feel intensely because there was a shock. Something generally unpredictable happened, something very painful happened, and it kind of in a way set a shock in the whole body-mind system. And to me, it's very important to see the connection between the two. And I remember, I saw this very vividly when I, long ago, I phoned, I phoned a friend to ask her how was she doing. And straight away she said to me, oh, this is terrible, life is so terrible, it's always terrible, it's awful. And I said, but what happened? Nothing happened, it's always terrible. And went around in circle a little. And then finally, 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 she said, yesterday, something I was afraid would happen, happened, and I'm very anxious, da, 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 da. But once we could say, not always like this, but it happened because of this, then, in a way, she could address the situation in a creative manner. But as long as you one says it's always like this, it will never change. Then, in a way, what can one say? What, there is no, there is no gap. There is no way to go in. Then there is the what I would call the habitual tendencies, when things kind of 
we do things very uh, relatively repetitively in whatever manner. And often we blind to it, but often a lot of our friends, our family know we do that. It's very interesting, our habits are very clear to most of the people we know. And I remember one dinner we had, my mother loved to have a big family Sunday lunch, and we had a mini one. A few people, a few were there, and suddenly there was a lull in the conversation. This was early day of my marriage with Stephen, and he was not totally used to the family habits yet. And so there is a lull in the conversation, and I think very kindly wanted, you know, to kind of be creative with the conversation. And he said, have you voted today? And we kind of all looked up and thought, oh, no. <laughs> and then my brother-in-law, who can be difficult at times, went into this huge rant for 30 minutes. <laughs> After that, Stephen learned not to do this again. <laughs> but you see, all of us knew this what would happen. But he did not know it because he did not know him yet. So in a way, we know the habits of people. We generally have an inkling. And sometimes they tell us, too. There is no doubt. And then there is a light manifestation, which is just about being human. Just light manifestation of something which is relatively repetitive. And I know for myself, I travel a lot. So one of my light manifestation of habits, I would say, which I can see very clearly in meditation, is luggage making. I sit in meditation, I think, what am I going to put in my luggage? <laughs> and you know, possibly in six months time, I go to South Africa, and so I'm thinking of my luggage now. You know? <laughs> and uh, until I finally caught it, I started to see I had that luggage loop. And now I see it, I think, uh-uh, not yet, not yet, <laughs> later. So in a way we can, I think the meditation can really help us to see the, the loops. What are the loops? What are the grooves that we can find ourselves in order <coughs> into? And so what I'd like to look at tonight, because there is only a certain amount of time, first is the mental habits, patterns, and then the emotional one. I mean, I won't go into great detail, but just to have a little look. And I think, in a way, with the mental patterning, this we can see so clearly when we sit in meditation. Because what is it? I mean, we try to watch the breath or the body or the sound. And then the question is, what is it that takes us away from it? And I would say a lot of the time, it's our mental patterning. It's our kind of mental grooves where our mind will really just go that way. And we can see, it doesn't just go to places we've never been. It generally goes to places we have been before. And I think what is important to see that, again, as I said before, the thoughts are the activity of the mind. They are the functioning of the mind. So we need to think. This is very essential. But what is, as a thing, the patterning comes in with the, this kind of um, texture of proliferation, of agitation, also I would say of burden. Sometimes our thoughts are very burdensome, repetitively burdensome, or confusion. They confuse us 
You know, we don't really want to think them, but they, they really confuse us. So anyway, there is this kind of repetition of this kind of mental kind of habit. And so in a way, we can see this clearly in meditation, in a way, what distracts us, what occupies us when we sit, what obsess us. And very likely, those things are what also what will obsess us, distract us, occupy us in daily life. And that's what to me it's very useful when we sit in meditation, we are more settled, we are more calm. And I think it's easier for us to look at them and to be with them in a different way. When if we are in a daily life, generally we, it's very hard to catch ourselves, to kind of, so in a way the meditation is to stabilize ourselves, to start to see it more clearly here. So then in daily life, we can see it more and be more stable when we watch them. So, intense, intense mental uh, patterning. What happens? The main, I think, quality of it is that it happens because of certain recent condition. Something has happened recently and then <gasps> it catches you in a certain way and then it's relentless. That's what its quality is. It's relentless. It goes round and round and round. It's very obsessive. Round and round and round. And it could, it can be positive. I mean, once I was teaching a retreat and somebody came to me after two days and said, you know, I'm, I, I need to go. I need to go. I, I can't stay. I said, what's the matter? She said, well, I was planning to come to this retreat for a year and then a few days before I came, I fell in love. So I sit in meditation and I keep thinking about, and so I think instead of thinking about him, I would rather be with him. I mean, why not? Why not? What could I say to that? <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting to see that, you know, the, the, the obsessive nature of the thought is not necessarily negative. It can be positive. And the, the thing with it is that generally it agitates us. It can... It's obsessive, it's relentless, but at the same time, it has a certain agitating quality. Or if we think of it in terms of negativity, a kind of a negative, uh, obsessive thought, I can look at myself. Uh, we went to South Africa to teach in the winter, and we left on a Wednesday, and we started to teach on the Friday, and then... Friday lunchtime, I phoned home to make sure my mother was fine, and I was told we'd been burgled. Our apartment had been burgled, and uh, whatever. So I start the retreat, and I have to teach about letting go and awareness and everything, <laughs> and I am sitting in meditation, and I, I have two types of obsessive thought. One is security. How can I make the house secure for the future? And that, I think, is a fairly normal obsession after a burglary. But the second one was very interesting. The second one was about revenge. <laughs> but kind of revenge as in what, thinking of the kind of traps I could put <laughs> in the house to catch them next time. <laughs> And so, and what was interesting, you know, I mean, I was teaching, I was kind of, you know, going in and out of it, not thinking of it all the time, but fairly obsessive when I was not talking. And that lasted for a day. And then, after a day, 
I was doing the guided meditation and you know, ran the security, the traps. And I thought, this is enough. <laughs> this is enough. You know, you had a shock, fair enough. You know, you have a bit obsessive about this. This is enough. But you don't need to do this for the next six weeks. You know, because, and to me, this is in a way when it is very obsessive, very relentless. That's where the power of the creative awareness can help us in seeing. Because you see, if you say, stop thinking this, it generally doesn't work because it's repressing, pushing something away, and wham, they come again. But what I saw very clearly at that moment was that I had to let go of those thoughts because the first type of security was there was no point of thinking about security from South Africa for the next six weeks. There was no point. It would not do anything. And the second one about revenge was not so good either, you know. <laughs> but of course, I mentioned it to my husband. He said, but yes, you know, somebody can get hurt with the strap. So compassion kind of worn out there. And I just let go. I said, let go. And I let go. And I did not do it anymore. And I think this is the power of, a, of the creative awareness to see. To You see, you have to let it go around a bit before you can let go of it. I think, you know, when you have had a shock, it has to go round and round a bit. And then you have to, to see, this is it. Let go. You don't need, this is not useful. This is not beneficial. So I think in that, if the power of the creative awareness is not strong enough, then I think the thing you can do is to see it, to see you are caught in this obsessive loop. And just to tell yourself, just stop for a second. Just for a second, come back to the breath. Come back to the breath. Then it comes again. Let another second, come back. So I think at the beginning, what we can do is little breaks in it. Because it still has a lot of power. So we have to make little breaks of just letting it go for a few minutes. And then, of course, it comes again. But then over time, its power will diminish. So in a way, to try to see how... We don't feed it, but how by slightly the space we make, slowly, slowly it unravels, and it's not so, we're not so caught in it. And I think, in terms of the daily life, to see that when we're caught in that really kind of obsessive, relentless kind of thought, we actually reduce ourselves to this thought that our creative potential has no space to come out. And one thing I think maybe we can try gently to tell ourselves, we are not just that obsessive thought. I cannot reduce myself to just this obsessive thought. And so to try to see, yes, I have this problem, this happened, this was difficult or whatever, but my life cannot be reduced to that. My life is much more multidimensional than that. So in a, in a way to try to open up from that small point to open it up. In what way can you open it up? Then there is a other type, the next type, which is the habits, the patterns. And it's really like the groove, the channel, its repetitive, its tendencies. And what I find interesting with the meditation is to, that these repetitive mental patterns, they have a taste, 
they have a, nearly like a texture that in the meditation over time we can feel the texture of it. And in a way through getting to really know the whole of the repetitive pattern. In a way that's why I think we need to see it. Before they dissolve we need to see the pattern. What is it I think? What is the texture? What is in a way is nearly the root of that pattern? What is that kind of in a way starts it? What is it that feeds it? And so I'm going to look through a few of them to kind of show the different kind of style, the different texture. So the first one, which I think is interesting about texture, is a daydreaming. One of the favorite activity when we sit in meditation, as I mentioned already, is daydreaming. You sit here and you have this wonderful film where you cre create your own mono-reality and you tinker with it. And, and what is interesting with that type of daydreaming is that it's very gooey. It's like, <laughs> if I was, if I had, and then off you go. It's kind of like, it's kind of, <gasps> the texture is very seductive. It's oh, so nice. <laughs> so much nicer than just watching the breath. <laughs> but, if we do this a lot, and if we do this a lot in daily life, it is very frustrating. Because you see, in the mind, it's a mono-reality of if everything goes according to plan. But in daily life, things not necessarily go according to plan. To see, you see, I think daydreaming comes from imagining. Imagining is a very good function. But when it becomes daydreaming, it takes us out of reality out of acceptance of what is going on. And then when we come back to reality, often we are very frustrated. It doesn't fit. So in a way to see that, to see in a way the danger of it. And through the help of the focus, coming back to the breath, coming back to the moment, to what is going on in this moment. Then there is ruminating. And I think again, we can see this quite clearly in the, in the meditation this kind of rumination which starts from the past where something painful happened. And, you know, right now we find here, I mean, as far as I know, nobody is bothering, bothering you in any way, so you're relatively okay. And then suddenly you think of something in the past which is very painful, so you bring it here, so it's painful now. And so you go round and round and suddenly you feel very bad. And then generally there is a movement to the future. And often there is like a plotting of revenge, you know? And you kind of plot various, you know, like me and my traps, you know, various revenge, you know, and they'll say that, and I'll say this, and I'll get them, kind of type of things. And you go through various revenge scenarios, I mean, very compassionate. And the thing is, you see, to see that we can learn from the past, but in a way we have to let the past where it is, learn from it and then leave it where it is, be in the present, in what is going on. And also to see, by cultivating the faith and the confidence in the present, then we'll deal with the future when it comes. Because whatever we prepare now for the future, generally the person doesn't say what we have scripted. <laughs> they will say something else. And in a way to see that, to kind of try the confidence in the present, and to say yes, 
to, I think to me the best thing to do for this type of situation is the stability and the openness. So that then whatever happens, I can meet it. I can deal with it. Then there is a fabricating. Fabricating is interesting because it starts out there. It's a kind of a, generally from a little anxiety, from a little fear. And you imagine a huge, generally quite relatively frightening or painful scenario. This can easily happen in the silence on a retreat. You are in silence, moving about, and then you think, hmm, he or she looked at me funny. Why do they look at me funny? I mean, there is nothing funny with me. <laughs> or is there something funny with me? <laughs> Maybe there is something funny with them. <laughs> and off you go. You know, when actually maybe they just had something in the eye. You know, they don't wear their glasses or who knows. There can be so many different interpretations. And in a way to see, that's why I think this question is useful when we think something. We go into what I would call a certain fearful scenario. To really, I mean, it could be possible that something, yes, but to kind of ask, is this true? What I'm telling myself, is this true? Is it really true? That I think is kind of like checking. Because often we think that what is in our head is true. But I think sometimes it is, but sometimes not so, not necessarily so. So to kind of check, is this true? And to see, often there you have a little, the fear. So to come back to the moment, what is all really going on now? What is it I can know for sure now? And also, to come back to this knowledge that there can be so many different interpretations. Sometimes I'm quite amazed when I kind of ask somebody, you know, how are you? And I'm kind of thinking they must be there and actually they are somewhere, somewhere else, totally, totally. It's always for me very kind of, kind of fact-checking. I think sometimes it's useful to see what's going on now. Is it what I interpret or is something else happening? Then there is judging as a, as a habit, which then is, is relatively painful, so the judging. Because judging is like you are present, but you are above the experience, and you kind of, in a way, comment on it. This is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, on yourself, on others. And there is like, nearly it's like there is this constant judge who never takes a holiday, who kind of constantly has to judge. And to see, of course, we need discrimination. We need to see this is a, a bell, this is a glass of water, or this is a microphone, and I could try to bang the microphone, but the bell might be better. So in a way, we, discrimination is useful. But to see when it becomes a habit, which actually makes this distance from really the experience itself, and which generally become quite burdensome because it's kind of this relentless. And then if you do meditation, what happens is that you see the judging, and then you start to judge the judging of the judging, and then you're judging of the judging of the judging, and then... And with the judging, I think it's... This is a tricky one because at one level, yes, you need to know this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. At one level, we need to know that. But to see how repetitive is it, 
And how useful is it? It's kind of coming back to the middle way. What, is, what would be the middle way for using judgment? And when is it too intrusive? When is it too much there? How can I? And I think again is to come back to what is going on really here? Do I need to judge something here? Can I just open my heart to the moment as it is? Sometimes, of course, we have to make quick judgment, no doubt. But sometimes, actually, we don't need nearly to make judgment. Our body made it for us, makes it for us. That's what is interesting. I think we judge in order to, to kind of know what's what. But sometimes we can do it so fast. I remember I was walking in America on a path, and suddenly I jumped. I made this amazing jump, worth about an Olympic jump. I'm not I, consciously, I consciously, intentionally, I could never do it. And Stephen said, "Wow, amazing! You know what was that for? And what that was for because I was going to walk on a rattlesnake." And in a way, what was interesting to me in that experience, and before I could say rattlesnake, I was already away from it. So something within my whole body-mind system saw the danger, and in that instance could do something about it. <laughs> so in a way, to be careful with the judging, I think the judging is often so that we kind of protect ourselves. If I judge rightly, then I don't have any trouble. And also, I think the judging can come from criticism. If we have been criticized, of course, a lot in the childhood, then it becomes, again, a pattern, a habit. But it was painful for ourselves. It will be painful for others. How can we diminish this habit? How can we bring it back to a kind of a wise judgment? Then you have another one, planning. Planning. We sit in meditation, we plan. We plan how we're going to get up from the cushion. We plan where we're going to walk. We plan how much we're going to eat today. We plan for our holiday. We plan from our retirement, or whatever it is. But what is interesting with planning that one is very repetitive. We go round and round and round. And it's generally not very creative. And then there is the next movement. You plan, round, 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 and then you remember the planning. So you go next round, remembering the planning. Then you remember to remember the planning. <laughs> and then there is very little space for the present. And where you generally don't need, especially here, to do so much planning. The schedule is there for that, to help you with the planning. So in a way, we need to plan. You need to plan to come here, you need to plan to leave. But how much do you need to plan? This is a question. And I would say what we can play with, with the planning, is not to do it more than five times <laughs> of any given subject. Of course, then you can go five times of this. Okay, now, next one, five times of that. But hopefully the counting will help you. <laughs> See that you don't really need to do it so much. You know, that you, of course you need to do it, but 
when does it become like, you know, and why do you plan? This is interesting. Why do we plan in this repetitive manner? And this again, the texture I feel is a little control, a little preparation for what is unpredictable. You see, we want to know what's what. We, yeah. And that's the problem with planning too much. That when we plan too much, then life does not go according to plan. And then we really feel so frustrated. We have such good plan. And we could not apply them because something happened. Because life is relatively unpredictable. So I think to see that kind of, why, why do I need to plan so much? Can I come back to this faith? I think with planning faith in myself that I can deal with the situation. I can plan a little, but I don't have to do it so much. I remember once I was so invited for the first time to Sweden and they wanted to organize me so much. I thought that was so sweet, but interesting. You know, be careful there, be careful this and that and that. So I said, yes, 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 yes. So I did what they wanted, get an insurance, da, da, da. I did all this. And three days before I go, I passed by, this was very lucky, by my mother's and see on the news that the company has gone bankrupt and the flight is kaput. And my first thought was, in good Buddhist, ah, it's impermanent. And I thought of staying home. But then I thought, no, 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 you know, I must go, I must go. So I got another one. But to me, it was so clear, you know, and even the insurance was not reimbursed that you can organize so much, you can plan so well. And it might go according to plan or it might not. So in a way to, to see, maybe I don't need to do it so much. Maybe can I just come back to what is going on now and do that through the awareness of the breath, of the body, of the sound. And then, of course, there are many others, but I'm not going, I don't have the time to go. You have speculation, you have counting, measuring. I mean, I'm always interested in a new one, if you know, a few new ones. Then there is a light. The light mental habits. And this is interesting, the light mental habits, because it's kind of what I would call occupying thought. And it's like shopping list. It's like light planning. It's like train of thought. You start thinking of Aunt Elga, and you end up in New York, and you have no idea how you got there. You go, off you go. And in a way, I think it's interesting to know the light mental thinking in terms that we can quickly go. This is what is interesting in terms of patterning. We can start by a light thought, and it certainly goes into the more repetitive, and certainly we coach in the intense. And we can go quickly from light to intense. But it's easier to deal with the light. So you know, to first to really know the light occupying thought, which I think that's what we experience more after a while in the meditation. So to really see what are the currents, the light currents, from which we can easily come back, and we can easily know, which then will help us to know more about how to deal with the repetitive and then the intense. And I think at that level with the thought, what is very useful is coming back, coming back to the breath, coming back to the anchor in the moment. And then, now I'd like to look at the emotional habit. And that, I feel, is very interesting. I'm, I'm not sure how much I can cover. I don't have so much time. 
But let's look possibly at fear and anger, but just to kind of see that with uh, emotional habits, what I think is interesting is just to look more how do we experience feelings? How do we experience emotion? And generally, we feel it somewhere in the body. And so I think in terms of the meditation, it's interesting to locate it, to know where do I feel feelings? Where do I feel my emotion generally? And generally, if we feel it in the solar plexus. I mean, somebody once told me they feel it in the back of the neck. Again, one has to find what is one location. Where do I feel my feeling, my emotion? Generally, here, and so I would say, in terms of the awareness in meditation, is like a feeling sensation. A feeling and emotion is not abstract. We feel it in the body. So we, and I think what we can do with the meditation, if the feeling, the emotion is not too intense, is to feel it before we name it before we said sadness, anger, whatever it is, to just go inside it, especially when it's not too strong, and just to feel it and feel this kind of just weird, moving sensation. And it does kind of vary. Sometimes it can be a little agitated. Sometimes it can be a little heavy. Sometimes it can be a little kind of out. There is different tonality to the, to the feeling. And I think... With the meditation, with the awareness, it's interesting to explore it if it is not too strong, because otherwise we might get very caught in it and intensify it. If it's not too strong, to see how can we be with it in a different way. Because often what happens with emotion is that we feel them and we, they're so organic in a way. We feel, we cannot question them. We feel they're totally true, they're totally, I mean, of course they're true as we experience them. But I think what is around them, I think from feeling something to heat becoming a disturbing emotion, there is a lot of things. And again, with the feeling, you can have again have the same, intense, habitual, and light. And I think again, it's easier to notice them when they're light. It's a little more difficult when it's repetitive and we can sink or get into them. But when it is intense, we're really caught. So in a way to try to work with them when they're lighter. So for example, if we take fear, fear is a natural feeling. It's a natural, ordinary feeling, which basically is a survival mechanism. We feel fear. It is very natural for us to feel fear. So it's kind of like a red alert. Fear is a kind of mechanism which says, Look out, watch out. And um, this summer, with my niece, eight years old niece, we discovered an uh, obstacle course in the tree. Kind of, you know, I don't know if you know, you have this in England, but in France now you have lots of those obstacle course. You glide and you jump and you go up nets and, you know, you are three, five, ten meters high, things like that. So we discovered it and we went. And so she would, <gasps> and then we saw, well, maybe we'll take her on just the path. And there was a path in the trees. And, you know, you, you have an harness and you secure to a lifeline, a cable, so it's safe. 
So we go up and it's okay. Then we go up and up and we might be, you know, really on top of a high tree, 12 meters. And then we're in the middle of the highest point. And she said, Auntie, I am too afraid. I want to go down. And there was no way to go down. I mean, there was no elevator, nothing, you know. And so I coaxed her, you know. Finally, we managed to go down and we walk. And then she turned to me with these big eyes and she said, But Auntie, I was so afraid. How come you were not afraid? And I said, I was not afraid because there is honest and the lifeline. We can't fall. And she said, ah. We go the next time. And she asked the monitor, is it true? You know, we secure on the lifeline. You say, yes. And that's the first thing she does. She go on one of the course, she jump, and yes, it works. After that, she was everywhere. She had no fear anymore. And to me, it was the same child. And that was, I was very struck by that, that it could just go, the fear could just go from the knowledge. This is safe. So in a way, I think, in a way, fear is natural. But when fear is in an intense mode, it can be very paralyzing. It can, ah! In a way, when we are very afraid, we go into two modes, either paralysis, either aggression. This is generally the two things that happen. We're afraid, and then we kind of, it's very hard. And I think this is very difficult, it's very intense. Then there is when you have fear as a habit, and this is what you can experience, I really experienced when I was in South Africa, not this time, but in other time that when everybody is afraid, and in South Africa, often some people are very afraid, and then it's very infectious. Fear is very infectious. And once I was with this lady and she was afraid all the time, and I became afraid within two hours of being with her. I was like, I was never been so afraid in my life. All the time I was very tense. And then a friend who is unafraid came and it went. So I think, again, we have to see with this habitual fear that it can be very, very stressful, very, very tense, and then it's very communicative. And that was what it was interesting this time when we taught. At the end, we were of a retreat, we were talking how meditation can help you in your daily life in South Africa. And there was this young woman who said, before, I was so afraid. I would not get out of the house. I would not get out. I would not drive the car. I was so afraid all the time because she lives in Johannesburg and it's relatively dangerous. And she said, I could not move. I could not do anything. And then she started to do meditation. And then she started to just watch the breath. And she said, now it's like a liberation. But now she, when she starts to feel the fear, she comes back to the breath. She comes back to what is going on in the moment. And in the moment, nobody is attacking her. And then she goes into her car, and she keeps being with the breath. And now she said, I can go anywhere with my car. And she was so proud that she could go anywhere with her car. But, and it was all thanks to the breath, to this having the feeling, but then checking through the breath, checking what is really going on now. Should I be afraid or not? And then there is a light manifestation of the fear. 
And I think this, I think, is good because it's to make us careful of, you know, what is going on. I think this is a basic kind of biological thing to be careful when we drive or when we walk along the road or when we walk on a cliff. I think, it's, I think fear also is very physical. <coughs> and that's what I learned from this obstacle course, that often we, there is mental fear, there is emotional fear, but I think there is also physical fear. And the third time we go to this obstacle course, we have to do the, the big course, because we have, we have failed twice. My niece and I, we failed twice. We were stuck in the middle. And we had to sheepishly be kind of brought down. And so this time, we're going to do this course. No matter what, we're going to do the Tarzan course. Because you start three meters, then five meters, and then seven, nine meters. You throw yourself into a net with a rope. So we do the first one, five, and I'm, I have to go ahead. I am the aunt. <laughs> first one, second one, it's okay. Third one, I mean, okay, I do it. I have to do it. I do it. So because mentally, emotionally, I know it was okay, but I could feel the resistance in the body to just throw myself off that kind of 10 meter high. I go up the net. I get onto the platform, and my body is shaking. I mean, mentally I'm fine, emotionally I'm fine, nothing has happened to me, but I'm like that. And so I kind of, I breathe, I breathe, and then finally, you know, it stopped. But I could really see that physical fear, which was in some way slightly independent from the mental or the emotional. And I think this is a basic kind of survival mechanism. So in a way, Again, how can the meditation helps us to be with those feelings? And it's the same with anger. You know, to see, the, again, there is this intense, habitual, light manifestation of anger. And how do we feel it? How does it manifest? And again, anger is not just a feeling. It's a whole body-mind stuff. And I think with the, to me, what is interesting is not to be, not angry, because I think that's often what Buddhists feel. Buddhists think they should not be angry, and then they're not angry, but they become resentful, which I think is worse. You know, if you are angry, might as well be angry, because then you can feel it, you can know how it is. You can see that it is very painful. The whole body goes, woo, 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 woo. and then your mind goes all over the place. And in a way, to know it, I think the awareness is to know how is it. Whatever feeling I have, how is it? How does it make me feel in the mind, in the heart, in the body, and to see how they're all connected? This is all connected. And how can I explore it? And how can I see the trigger? How can I diminish the power? And I think, again, it's with the awareness to come back to the breath, to the body, to the sound. But again, it's not... This does not happen in one day. I think, again, it's a process of, in a way, exploring those habits, getting to know them, and then slowly, slowly, through various ways with the focus, but also with the inquiry, I'll talk more about that tomorrow, to, to, to kind of see, to actually say, what is this, this thought? What is this, this feeling? What is this, this sensation? 
so that we don't have an a priori. It's like this. It's bad. It should not be there. I want more of it. But you kind of explore it. So again, there is more space. There is more movement. So that we can be with our feeling or our thought in a more creative way. And my time is up, so I'll stop here. Are there any... To say, oh, it's always like this. Mm-hmm. <coughs> what if the condition is a permanent condition? I would say it is relatively constant because even within it, it fluctuates. Like, <coughs> if I look, there is a book I would recommend to anyone which I think is very uh, interesting by Darlene Cohen, Finding the Joy in the Heart of Pain. And this is this, this uh, Zen teacher who uh, very, very uh, active, very mobile, very go-getting. And then she got rheumatoid arthritis. So this is a relatively permanent condition, you would say. I would, that's why I would prefer to say constant. It's a relatively constant condition. In the same way that you could say the ocean. You have the ocean, and the ocean is relatively constant. But the state of the ocean is changing. Sometimes it's very flat. Sometimes it's very stormy. And I think, and what was interesting with uh, uh, Darlene Cohen and her rheumatoid arthritis is that, yes, the, the condition is relatively constant, but the way it manifests in the body can change. And it also can change according to the way she, she interacts with it. That's why the book is very interesting, because she, she shows that sometimes it's awful, sometimes it's really really painful. And she says sometime in the morning she gets up and she just kind of shout and kind of, kind of, you know, try to explain. So she would cry and then they would join in. And that kind of, it really released everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but she said at all the time, she's actually, she, she can't really move much and she lies in bed and then she kind of investigate, explore the whole room and the whole world around her in a different way. Very minute. And then she discovers something that, you know, she'd never seen before. And then sometime, I mean, she says she goes for three months and she, I don't know for how long, a few weeks, and she house clean for a, for a center for two hours a day. But she said the way she could do it because was she used it as exercise to help a rheumatoid arthritis. So it seems to me that you have something which is relatively constant, but within it, there can be change. And there seems also to be change within the way you can be with it. And so that's what I mean. I think there is, in a way, constancy, but within that, there can be some change. Yes? Um, I find that uh, sometimes in the, in the meditation, I, um, sometimes I've got no idea what's going to happen in the next minute, what kind of breath it'll be, or what sound, or and, and sometimes it feels like a problem, that complete not knowing what the next 
Well, in a way, <laughs> that's what we're trying to develop, <laughs> and especially tomorrow, I think, with the what is this. Uh, I mean, the, the cultivation of the questioning tomorrow that I will suggest is very much about not knowing, about, in a way, opening to that dimension of our experience, of unknowing, of uncertainty. And, of course, it feels a little frightening. You know, and some people really, for some people, it's, they must do this questioning. Uh, they must be careful with it because it makes them anxious, actually. And some just love it to just go with the unknowing. So I think, again, to be careful with it. You know, if you have this slight feeling of unknowing and it's a little frightening, I would say to be very gentle with it. And then to come back. That, yes, it's unknowing, but to see nothing bad has happened. I mean, in terms of sitting on the cushion, generally nothing bad happened. So, you know, to, to, to see, like, you have this slight apprehension. And in a way, the apprehension is not confirmed by the next moment. Because the next moment that you did not know a second before is fine. But do, you, do, you, do you have to plan the next moment a little bit, or, or do you not have to? No, 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 not at all. don't have to. I'm kind of trying to plan and preempt it, you know, the next. Right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think, you see, I mean, when we sit in meditation, I really don't feel we don't have to preempt anything. Because, you know, we just sit that this is really the opportunity to really sit here and accept each moment as it comes. And one moment you are very bright, clear on the breath, and the next moment you could be so far away. And the next moment you can all can be here. So at that level, I think the meditation can be very much a training for, I would say, encountering the moment fully as it is. To really give ourselves to the moment. But of course, when you are in daily life, it is a little different. Of course, you have to be more depending, you know, if you're working on your garden, generally this is fairly fine. But I think, uh, you know, if you are in London, in uh, Oxford Street, and you want to cross the road, then yes, you have to, pre you know, look in the side. You make sure that you can walk across. You have, to, you have to plan a little. You have to kind of consider the condition. So I think sometimes we have to do more planning, and sometimes we have to do less planning. And so it's back to that wisdom. Where do I need to plan? Sometimes it can, you know... It, you know, sometimes you have to really, I mean, at the moment, I'm going to go away for a month teaching, and I have my taxes, you know, and I have to prepare my tax, uh, prepare my paper for giving to the tax office. It's very important in France. I'm sure it's the same in England. And I think, you know, I need to do this. I need to do this. And then I know I can only do this when I'm really it's calm, I'm not tired, because it's numbers, and I'm not so good with numbers. And so I can see, you know, the desire to preempt, to plan, and I can see I have also to wait the right moment. And now that I know it's April, I think, okay, okay, I'll find the moment. But I can see, yes, yeah, the desire to plan, to, to make sure. And then also to know, knowing in the experience, that I must choose a moment. 
So I think there is these two things that sometimes we can only plan and do it at the time also which is right. So there is also this kind of two playing with it. It's not that we never plan, but I think it's kind of with our condition, with the outside condition, what is one who could say the more skillful planning and preparing. Because of course sometimes we have to prepare. Like I would say if you have a di- you're going to have a difficult meeting, then I think of course you have to prepare. But the way to prepare is to of course know everything you have to know for the meeting. But more than re- repeating everything in your head, yes, yes, that, I know this, I know that. I think once you know it, I think you can trust you. <coughs> what you need to prepare is your whole inside yourself. I can do this. And to really go inside the, the strengths you have in yourself instead of, oh, but what if they say this? What can I say? Of course, you do this a bit, but only up to a point. And then you have to stop and to trust in yourself, in your stability, in your openness. So to me, in a way, the meditation is that. Building up the stability, the openness, the creativity, so that we have to plan less. We have to preempt less. We are more confident. Again, that great faith and that great courage to move. And I have to stop here. And now there is walking. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.